Welcome to HR Insights, the podcast, topical discussions with and for our global HR community. Hi everyone, my name is Stuart Elliott and welcome to another edition of HR Insights. Today we're going to talk about careers in HR. Um, that's been a theme of season six actually. We wanted to sort of spice things up a little bit and talk to people that are actually on the front line. And today I'm joined by Greg Morley, someone that I've known for how long, Greg? Gosh, if we're counting back uh, <laughs> back to our Hong Kong days, at least uh, 18 years, I think now. 18 years is a long time now. Shane, so I haven't seen Greg in a little while. And actually, before we started recording this podcast, we were talking about COVID times and how difficult that was as well. But but Greg, look, for our audience, I know you very well, but do you want to do a little intro in you and into you and your background? Sure. Thank you uh, for having me, Stuart. And um Somehow you haven't aged a bit in 18 years. So I, I feel I've got some glasses better. on. Yeah. I didn't have them before. <laughs> so, uh, so a little bit about me. I uh, started my career in um, in sales and marketing, actually, and then I worked in uh, GE for a while. I grew up in the U.S. in Philadelphia. Was fortunate enough to be moved around a bit by that company, and ultimately, I ended up in Florida. And uh, the saying goes that uh, it's not if, but when you're going to work for Disney when you live in Florida. And <laughs> I uh, started a 17-year career with Disney, uh, first in operations, then in HR. And that uh, brought me to uh, the West Coast of the U.S. and ultimately to Europe and uh, then to Hong Kong where we met. Uh, and then I finished my, my journey with Disney in Shanghai when, yeah. when Disney was building Shanghai Disney. Came back, worked for Hasbro for a while in um, in Hong Kong, uh, leading HR for Asia Pacific. Then at the end of that journey, I started to transition into diversity and inclusion in Hasbro, and then was fortunate to uh, become associated with LVMH Group and specifically Moet Hennessy, which is the luxury wines and spirits part of yep. uh, LVMH, which I was particularly interested in since I was already a consumer of the product. So uh, I, I went from having a toy discount to a champagne discount, which was a much more aligned Sounds with like my, upgrade. my lifestyle. Is that upgrade yes. and discount? <laughs> and uh, so um, spent uh, the first part of my time in Hong Kong as the head of HR for Asia Pacific. And then um, in middle of 2022, moved to Paris to be the global head of diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is a role that I'm holding now. And I uh, love being back in Europe and enjoying a European winter again. Yeah. And, and we were saying, obviously, the Olympics to look forward to later this year in Paris. Yeah, it's a great place to, uh, to live and re-explore Europe. And, and yet I'm very fortunate to now be in this. Somehow Paris is a bit the middle of the world. You can easily get back to Asia, which I'll be going back to Hong Kong in a couple of weeks. And I can easily get to North America and see my family. So I feel very fortunate to be back in Europe. Yeah, that's that's really good. When, when you're going through that, uh, your background just then, actually, you, you talked about the fact that you were operations before you were HR. Do, do you want to ask, was there a reason why you moved into HR back then? It, yeah, a bit about how I got into HR. So yeah. I, I worked for a, a guy in when I was at GE, and he was... Uh, he was like a second father to me, actually. Right. He really sort of took me under his wing. And he at one point said to me, you know, I think you'd be very good in HR. I wasn't sure if that was a compliment or a, a, an insult. <laughs> I, I thought maybe he thought you're, you're not a very good salesperson. Maybe you'd be better in HR. It turns out, actually, he was right that uh, I had a, 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 a skill and a competency that he saw in me. And when I joined uh, Disney... The guy that hired me, who's still quite a good friend of mine, also saw that in me. And so they gave me opportunities, which I was willing to take. You right. know, I think part of the, the journey in HR oftentimes is that uh, we may be intimidated by the fact that maybe we don't know a lot about HR. When I first started in real HR role, which was an HR generalist role, at Disney in Epcot, the theme park, <laughs> I, I felt very unequipped for the technical parts of HR. And so I went back and got a master's in HR T to do sort of my quick training on what HR was all about. I realized that having been in sales and marketing, 
and having been in operations, and I did some work in, in organizational design uh, on a project, I actually knew a lot more about HR than I gave myself credit for. Right. Now, I didn't know how to do a pay study. I didn't know how to design a training program. I didn't know how to uh, do executive compensation, things like that. I learned those technical things over my career, but also by getting a, getting a master's. Uh, and so that, I, I was lucky to have people who saw that in me. Yeah. Do you think that for your HR career, then having that background in sales, marketing, operations has, has helped you over, over your career as well? Absolutely. Yeah. I think having done work that's not specifically related to HR, whether one does that in their early part of their career or they dip in and out of it during their career or they just take in a short-term assignment on projects and get very close to the operations, the sales, the marketing, the executive management. Uh, that's really important because, you know, it, it's a bit of one thing I think in HR we have to always be mindful of is that we do it for some end. Yeah. So we, we have great HR because we're trying to create a great culture so that the organization hires great people so that the organization is profitable. And we oftentimes forget that chain, that value chain and where we, we sit in the value chain. Um, and so yes, being aware of that and intimately involved in it and understanding from a manager's perspective when they get that HR email, yeah. what do they think about? Are they hitting the delete button immediately because it came from you or are they thinking, okay, that person I think has an appreciation for what I do. I need to read that. It's going to help me. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. It sounds like it helps you in terms of the relationships that you had through the business as well. And funnily enough, I was reading a study just yesterday on this actually around um, people letting the relationships lead the strategy rather than sometimes HR processes leading the strategy. Because mm -hmm. if someone, to your point, if someone gets an email saying we're going to have to change this from an HR perspective, sometimes the business will push back on that if they don't have the relationship, I'm guessing, with HR that they should. Yeah. We just did a big project in uh, in Moat Hennessy where I'm, I'm working now, and the project was on redesigning uh, global mobility. Right. So how does one get from London to Hong Kong, and what's the process, and how do we treat their families, and what's the cultural induction that happens? And, and uh, we came up with and just an awesome recommendation. I have to say, it's 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 really going to change the way people experience mobility and how they it, it enhances their career and ultimately their life. They're human beings. They're moving around. They have families. And as we were presenting this to the management, somebody said, "You know, that's going to take a lot of effort for from us to implement those things." Yeah, because you have a, an HR team in Paris. There's maybe 20 of you. There's one HR person in Korea. <laughs> so how's that one HR person? So it was great insight because now we can redesign the way we're going to change manage so that the burden is not falling on everybody at the end of the chain. And I think having that appreciation for what happens when what we create in our HR factory yep. ends up out in the, out in the world, that, uh, that it's relevant to what they're doing and it's helping them to be better at what they do. Yeah. I have loads of questions. Before I do, I also want to touch on sort of your journey to, to Asia a little bit as well. <clears throat> um, you were in Asia a long, a long time. I um, was. Was it 17, 18 years, you 17 say? 17 years, yeah, 17 in Hong years. Kong and uh, with a couple in Shanghai. What kept you there? Oh, it's a great question. Um, I love the diversity of the work. You right. know, it's part of the reason... Um, HR is so fascinating because HR is a discipline that you really can spend your whole life in and never get stuck in anything. It's multidisciplinary. Different companies apply HR in different ways. It has a lot to do with the culture of the organization and, and it can have very much to do with the business outcome. So there's all, they're all different aspects. Asia is a bit like that. It's a you know, for people that have not lived and worked in Asia, Asia looks like sort of a big dispersed Asia. <laughs> but in fact, it's, you know, 12, 15 different, very unique countries and cultures. And, and 
you know, Japan is extremely different from China is different from Hong Kong is different from from Southeast Asia, India and, 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 uh, and Australia, New Zealand. And so what's so f what what fascinated me about doing regional work in Asia is that you're constantly being challenged to think about, OK, we, we want to do a program on cultural competency. OK, what is cultural competent leadership look like in Asia Pacific? Yeah. It actually looks like 12 different things. Um, and how do you create cultural competency in an organization, in, an organ in, in a geography that's as diverse as the Asia Pacific region? So I was always drawn to that. And what I was so drawn to in Hong Kong was Hong Kong, as you know from having lived there, yep. is when you'd sit around the dinner table with friends or colleagues, it seemed like there were never of two of the same nationality. It was a bit like Noah's <laughs> Ark every time you uh, you had a meal, and um, and I love that. I love that diversity of thinking, of uh, of of challenging each other, of trying to understand each other's culture. Um, it was always the incredibly rich place to to live and to to work. Yeah, I I, I can I can agree more. And and I know that obviously Hong Kong and, and its relationship with China is is changing at the. At, at, the minute actually and, and prior to COVID there was the protests I know which was a really difficult uh, time for, for people that were there did did you what was the big difference between Shanghai to Hong Kong in terms of you living in those two locations another great question so I think um, you know one of the things that Hong Kong has benefited from is its own uh, rebirth and rebirth and rebirth. So if you think about Hong Kong in the 50s and 60s, it was quite a poor place. And then over time, it developed and it became a, a, a center of industry. But it always had a rushy edge to it. Even now, you walk down a street in Hong Kong, it, you can't walk fast enough. Everybody's walking a little bit I faster than you. I love Hong Kong. That yeah. for me is huge. I love the pace of it. And, you know, now I live in a city in Paris, which is like a city of strollers. And so I'm <laughs> having a hard time getting around town because nobody's walking fast enough. But that's a, that's a cultural difference. So Shanghai grew up from always, and, and what Hong Kong grew up from was never really having a plan of growing up. It was just always about the activity and, 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 and being, being uh, an economic center. Shanghai always had a plan. So when you're in Shanghai, you don't see people running down the streets. It's, it's a sort of more orderly, more, more laid out. The difference, of course, between the two is that Hong Kong's a little bit more unruly sometimes, um, whereas Shanghai's always a bit, I would say, a bit more orderly. I guess from a Westerner perspective, I always found Hong Kong more accessible. Right. It was more accessible to understand the culture, to be with local people, to really feel like you were part of Hong Kong. Uh, I think I felt a little bit less that way in, in Shanghai because I didn't speak the language and and uh, maybe because you didn't have as much of an expat community uh, at that time. Now, I was in Shanghai in 2010 to 2013, yeah. so it was a, it's every time I go to Shanghai now, I literally walk down the street and I'm like, whoa, that's new, or that's changed. Uh, so Shanghai evolves very quickly, and I'm interested to go back, not having been there since before COVID, to see how much it's developed. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you on that. Like, for me, from going to Shanghai, I think I first went to China in 2007, and then subsequently went, so I think, five or six years later. And the change just in that time, from 2007 to 2012, was just incredible. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it is amazing. It's, it's interesting that you reference, think back to Hong Kong as a, as a poor place, was one of your first comments. If you go there, you would never think that. It's only from the old pictures when you're there that you actually see it, that you, you see what it did used to look like. Yeah. Um, now, I think everyone probably knows it very, very much from the films that you see and those amazing sort of pictures across the harbour with these amazing buildings that have just shot up there as well. But It's a spectacular place, and I, um, you know... Having interestingly, having moved to Europe and a lot of uh, friends having left Hong Kong over the last couple of years, local friends, uh, expat friends, you know, I think we're all the the conversation always draws back to Hong Kong. Yeah. So it <laughs> it's still, in a way, still feels like home, even though I've left there. 
uh, for a lot of us, it's still in our very much in our heart and our head, and I expect that it always will have that uh, that that place for us. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. I, I still hold my uh, I've got my Hong Kong ID card that sits in my wallet. I will keep my permanent residency for for as long as I possibly can. So. Yeah, it's very, very dear to my heart. But believe it or not, we've been chatting here just in terms of career and moves around the world. I haven't even asked you one of the questions that we planned so far. So um, <laughs> it's, we, we're going to get we're going to get okay. onto that actually actually now. So obviously your, your current role, diversity and inclusion. What 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 do you think? I suppose are the most important factors in terms of making progress around diversity and inclusion because we've come a long way already, haven't we? Like for me, 10, 15 years has been a probably a lifetime in, in DEI. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we have to remember that because yeah. uh, how far we've come has been significant and um, the, the, the challenge oftentimes is there's so much more we want to do, which is probably part of what I would say has to be how, how we set up it, it to be successful. It's where are you trying to go? What is, yeah. the, uh, what is the end in mind? Because... You know, it's it 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 can be everything and everything and, and and nothing if you don't if you don't have some objective in mind, and so in our organization, we very much come at it from the perspective of transformation, culture shift, um, creativity, and ultimately uh, commercial success. That's that's where we're headed. Now there are a lot of components that go into that gender equity, whether that has to do with representation, yeah. things like pay equity, benefit equity, um, being uh, a culture that listens, being a culture that hears people, uh, where discrimination is not uh, tolerated, and when it happens, that it's dealt with. Uh, being an organization that is culturally competent—I used that term before, but it's really important to us—and so. If we know where we want to go, then what? So then, what do we need? Well, we need a strategy, and we yep. need some measurement against what we're going to do. Um, and the last thing that we need is a senior leader or leaders who are championing championing it. We're very fortunate in Moat Hennessy that the um, the CEO understood the importance of having a more diverse and inclusive organization. He understood it from the perspective of commercial uh, success and competitiveness. Yep. And that was how I actually got into it. And one of the things I remember, he was in Hong Kong, and my boss at the time in HR said, hey, would you talk to him? He's interested in you taking on this role. And so I said, sure, we'll have lunch. And I asked him, I said, what's in it for you? You know, why is this agenda important to you? Of course, everybody at that point was appointing DE&I heads. So he could have done just to say, well, we have a diversity head. Yeah. Um, I loved my job. I didn't really want to step into a job that was a, that was kind of a trophy thing. And he said, like, this is about transformation of our company. This is about us being successful. So he is my sort of pillar of success measure. The second I talked about the strategy is because we're a global organization, we need a framework. And then I need to be able to say to Brazil, take the framework and make it make it yours. Right. To Malaysia, make it Malaysia. Make it Hong Kong. Make it US. Um, because it is such a complex field and the issues are very different around the world. There are some issues that are global. Gender equity is a global issue. Okay. Um, beyond that, there are not that many issues that's, that, that, that reach across every location, every, every place in the world. So there has to be some localization. And once there's localization and ultimately measurement of what people are trying to do, I think you can build a successful roadmap. Yeah, that, that's really I, – I think actually one of the issues uh, with DI at the moment, a lot of people hear it, but to your point, don't know where they want to go. So – they, they want to put something in play because they think it's doing the right thing yeah. but don't necessarily know what they want to achieve. Um, but it's interesting, you, you so you, is, is DI something that you proactively wanted to get into? Because it sounds like it was all sold to you a little bit and it was an opportunity that you then grasped. Is that right? I, I've always had a, a interest in the space. Yep. And um, even, you know, I, I remember the first diversity training I attended was back in, Gosh, probably like 1996 when I joined Disney. All every manager had to go through a day of what was called diversity training, and 
It, diversity what did, training. What did that look like at the time? <laughs> um, you know, it was interesting because I, I, I vividly remember that experience. We were brought into a room, and the first experience was to sort of get everybody engaged in the discussion. So they systematically uh, insulted everybody in the room very subtly by, you know, insulting your race, your orientation, your gender. Your, I mean, it was <laughs> like, so everybody was put in the position of feeling like a lot of people feel, which is, which is dismissed, not heard. So it was effective, but I don't think you could do that now because it's, it was a bit too affronting. Right. Um, so since then, I've been engaged with diversity and inclusion in some way, whether that was through my management role, whether that was through HR. Um, when I was at Disneyland in California, I, for a while, was the head of uh, diversity for, for Disneyland. Okay. Again, it was, at that point, very much about representation. We, we hadn't really stretched it very far into cultural impact or transformation or equity. Uh, which it which it certainly evolved to, and I think it involved evolved to that well. And so at this point in my career, to be able to have, I think the credibility of my experience, uh, both working in business and in HR, to be able to apply that to diversity and inclusion and and ultimately to and the success of our organization. Um, is where I should be. Right. So, so it sounds like there's always been an interest from your side. You've always been involved in it in some way. It's just that now it officially says that on the, on the job title. Yeah. And I, I, I'm much more interested in it now that it is very much related to the success of, of, of our business. Yeah. And very much related to uplifting people rather than to say, you know, we've reached a gender equity target or we've reached a representation target or something else. That's all fine. Um, but the, the, the impact of it in an organization that believes in the impact is, uh, is a great place to be. Yeah, it sounds like a good home. It sounds like it's, uh, it's definitely some, someone that actually genuinely believes in it gives real meaning to, to yeah. the work that you do too. And that was a bit of what inspired me ultimately to write a book because I had been doing this for a while and somebody said, hey, you should write a book. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, you know, what am I going to write a book about? And this is kind of how it got to this point. And, and it's the, the, that opportunity to tell other people's stories, in fact, about um, the space and, and, and how people thrive in the space, how they struggle in the space, and um, um, ultimately to, to do something that's kind of a give back to people so yep. that they can take in and go, okay, I can do this. Yeah. So back to your point about people struggle oftentimes in the beginning, what do I do? I can't tell you how many people I talk to and say, I don't know how to get started. And so that's why I use this sort of like have a champion, have a strategy, have an end in mind, uh, because if you have those things, you can start even very small yeah. and, and, and build credibility and then create something that's really game changing. Yeah, so I'm really pleased you brought the book up actually as well, but how long did the book take you to write? Well, fortunately, we had COVID, so I had a lot of downtime. <laughs> so it was pretty straightforward. <laughs> Sit in a room, done. <laughs> well, this is what's interesting. I've never written a book before. I don't know if you've written a, a book. Okay, so, well, let me tell you how it doesn't work. You don't sit down at a typewriter or a computer and start doing once upon a time, dot, 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 <laughs> dot, dot. Um, so it was never my, it was always my intention, actually, to write travel articles. Right. Because I love traveling, and I, I love the... I love the experience of, of, of interacting in different situations with different people, which is why I love, back to your question about Asia so much. And uh, I had a very close friend and coach who said, you know, you should write a book one day. And I was like, about what? And she said, well, you could write about diversity and inclusion. You have a lot of experience in that. I said, okay, well, I'll think about it. And then she connected me with somebody who actually knows how to write books. Okay. And so had I not had that connection, right. I think I would still be at the computer once upon a time, dot, dot, dot. Um, so we, we started to throw around ideas, what would be interesting. I, at the time, was involved very much with uh, the gay games, and we were bringing the gay games to Hong Kong, which was a massive challenge during protests, COVID, government restrictions. When, when, was, when was this? What time period are we talking this about? This is uh, 2019, 2020, 2021. Okay. So oh, really like difficult. right yeah. in the middle of COVID, the lockdown, yeah. just post-protests in, in, in Hong Kong. Um, so we thought we may write about a book about that. 
maybe some of it's autobiographical. I bought autobiographical. I thought that's not that inch. I don't even think I would read that. It's just too much about <laughs> me. You're being a bit harsh, yourself, or, Frank. <laughs> or or we write about diversity and inclusion, and somehow it became a bit of the three things. Right. So, and I'm, I I was very purposeful about knowing the world in which we live now, which is a very, very polarized discussion about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the loudest voices probably have the least representation, right. but they are the loudest voices because of social media, because of the outrageousness of loud voices. And the idea of this, this, this effort, this book was to kind of come to the middle and say, what is this all about yep. and how can it have impact? And by taking this, the, the, the voices of people who do this well, who are building it, who work in or different organizations in different contexts, whether that's Fortune 50 companies or NGOs, uh, I think it helps to get back to that question of how do I start? If you can hear it in the voice of other people, I think you can feel like, oh, I, I see that, that in me. And I can take that as, a, as an inspiration and get away from the the very polarizing discussion that's happening right now. Yeah, and, and then I suppose the actual writing of the book, is that all you or was there sort of, you mentioned sort of there's input, but was, did you write it? Uh, that's the, the sharing between myself right. and, and, and my co-author. So we, it, it's very much like my experience that maybe you had as well in writing a term paper in, in university. <laughs> you sort of sit down and you write a bunch of stuff and then you step away from it. And then you come back and you throw a little bit more meat on the table and then you step away from it. And then, you know, we had somebody helping us with research and, and other stuff. A lot of book writing actually has to do with everything except writing the book. You know, okay. the where you're going to market it and who you're going to invite into the book, who's going to recommend the book, uh, the cover. Yeah. I mean, all these things that I... I just never thought about all that because I wasn't a professional. So, uh, but the actual writing of the book was was fascinating because I met so many interesting people um, and had discussions with people that I knew, some people that I had worked for that yeah. I invited into the, the project and it was just really enlightening. Uh, and I'm really excited actually to share it because it it's, was meant to be shared. That's yeah. the point of it. Yeah, that's very good. I think I need to get on my reading list. What, what's the book called? It's called Bond, B-O-N-D, uh, Keys to Inclusion and Belonging. Interesting. So hopefully soon, coming and when, soon. And when did it, when did it launch? I, I, it hasn't. I, so I, okay. it's, uh, it's done, pretty much done, and hopefully uh, within the first quarter of 2024, it'll be out. That'll be awesome. And, yeah. and you mentioned there about markets and marketing the book, et cetera. Where is it being marketed? Is it... Um, so mainly in the U.S. and then in Europe, my hope would be that uh, it's successful enough from a print perspective that I can ev eventually uh, translate it into at least French and Chinese, wow. uh, traditional Ch or, uh, simplified Chinese, and then hopefully other other languages. But this is also the other thing I didn't know about, which is you know there's. Amazon rules the world when it comes to books. <laughs> and so, so uh, I will be encouraging people to to purchase the book, not for the financial part of it, but so that I can I can have it eventually translated. It can reach more people. I'm hoping you might do an audio book, which will be voiced by yourself, uh, maybe. I'll I, do my best. I, I quite like that. I like <laughs> walking around and being able to listen to a book now. That's a good idea. Okay. Yeah. That'll be generation two. Let me just get this one out first. <laughs> That's awesome. And then like, some of the other questions you had, obviously, I wanted to talk a little bit more about, I suppose, DEI and, 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 and to, today, I suppose. Like, what are your thoughts then, I suppose, in the sort of current state of thinking around diversity, equity, equity and inclusion? Because I know it's, for, from what I understand and have, have been talking to people about the market, it's been a tricky year for mm -hmm. DEI. It's been, yeah, it's been different to what it had been previously. Yeah, there's a lot more, um, uh, I would say, uh, community counseling that's going on in the DE&I practitioner world these yeah. days because of, uh, because of what's happening. And again, you know, there are these very, very loud voices on the edge which have, you know, in a way hijacked the discussion for other means, I think. Um, and some people, I think, who, who live on the margins also have good intentions. It's not a matter of everybody's trying to 
to, to build up or tear down DE&I just because they have a, an alternative agenda. But there's a lot of that. And so I, we just did a, um, a survey, uh, an employee survey for yeah. the first time in a while. And we called it Have Your Say. So we want employees to have their say. And on this topic of do you think the company is diverse and inclusive, we had, I don't know, like 85% of the employees said yes, very, or, 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 and I'm like, who are those 15% that said not? <laughs> yeah. Because to me, the agenda of DEI, we always have to remember that it's about human beings. So what do we want in our organization for individuals? We want them to feel it's safe. We want them to feel like there's community. We want them to feel they have a voice and they're heard. Yeah. We want them to feel like they have a career. Now, all those things happen, can happen in an organization that has representation, that has inclusive uh, leadership, that has a solid culture. Who doesn't want that? So when, when, you, when you bring it back to that part of the agenda or that part of the discussion, we all want that. And it doesn't matter where you are on the yeah. spectrum. We all want that. So I try that's in, in our organization, we try to really continue to bring it back to that. Um, and again, that's what the book is about. How do you bring it back to this very human part of uh, working in organizations where people can thrive, be successful, and ultimately the, the organization can be successful, whether that's a big company like LVMH or a you know, small NGO like the Gay Games in Hong Kong. Yeah. All of those organizations can benefit from creating that kind of culture. Yeah, and, and how, how, do you, how do you respond a little bit to, I suppose, some of the sort of articles just of, of late, like we talk about the Harvard president resigning, being pretty much forced out. Um, and there was even a comment, I think it was by a hedge fund leader that essentially said that all forms of DEI are essentially racist. Like, <laughs> how, how, do, how do you respond to that? Because it's... It's quite damaging, isn't it, hearing comments like that? I think it's more damaging if we don't listen to that voice. Right. Because that's a perspective, right? And so if we discount the perspective of others, then that's not at all what we say we're all about. Yeah. Right? If I have an outrageous perspective, then I somebody should listen to my outrageous perspective because <laughs> there might be a nugget of wisdom in that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, this what's happened with the with the two university presidents and then this very long Twitter post, X post, that was done by the, the hedge fund uh, guy, and I don't remember his name. I don't Hatchman? think... Yeah, I can't, yeah, I can't remember now, but yeah. And so there's some nuggets of wisdom in that long screed. And th there's also a lot of things that I think he gets completely wrong, which is that, you know, DE&I is inherently racist. It's... If you feel like you're the underrepresented person in the discussion of DE&I, nothing could be further from the truth. So, you know, it gets it, it, that part of it is is something that struck me when I was having discussion with a senior leader in our organization, who's Western, older, white, experienced, very successful, and his question to me was. You know, I feel like I'm becoming a dinosaur because all we talk about are people that don't look like me, that aren't me. And my view to him was, this is, you need to be the champion of those people, the allies of those people. Make that your brand. And it's going to make us a much more successful organization if we have this diversity of representation, diversity of thought, diversity of uh, momentum in the organization. And that's what what diversity and inclusion should be all about. Not about we pick somebody and we give them preferential treatment. That is, that's really not what the, what the agenda should be about. Yeah, and if, I, if, I'm, being, if I'm being a little bit critical of, of HR maybe more generally on this, um, the one thing I would say over the years that I see is I see, I say I see, I hear a lot of good commentary on DEI. A lot of championing, a lot of people supporting it. So the actions that I see are very different. Mm -hmm. And if I, to, if I was to use a good example, I would say I could see a company that will push DI on one, one theme, and whether that's using a forum like LinkedIn or whatever. 
On the other hand, I will then see someone get hired and then they'll bring in their mates. Yeah, yeah. Now, that for me is not DEI in action. That right. is that is somebody coming into a new opportunity and then establishing bias in a process immediately yeah. and not actually following through the process. How do, do you see that as well? Because I, I see it a lot and I'm surprised. I, I'll, I'll go back to my Disney experience. So I... I went to this training. I said it was like 1996. I mean, I can't even imagine it was that long ago. At that time in Disney in Florida, we had employee, what were called uh, employee groups. They weren't employee resource groups, but there was, a, there was a women's group. There was a gay and lesbian group. There was a, a working mom's group. And I had to think to myself, why is it then 20 years later, Really, nothing's changed. <laughs> yep. and, and, and when I came to uh, Moet Hennessy, I really tried to take all of the things that I had done wrong as much as the things I had done right in DEI. I think the challenge of that is we had women talking to women about the issues women were facing in the organization. We had gay people talking to gay people about gay people, the issues that LGBTQ were having. And that makes you feel good, but it's not changing anything necessarily maybe changing things on the margins. So to me, the important thing that you are addressing is activity does not make change necessarily. It makes people feel good. Oh, we had a big pride event. Oh, awesome. It's a great place for LGBTQ people to work. Not necessarily. It just means we can throw good parties. Yeah. So when when we started this journey in, in Moet Hennessy, I with my colleagues who joined me on this, we were very purposeful about the first thing we need to do is rewire the system. So we need to have a focus on policy and process. We need to have a focus on, on educating the organization. We need to have a focus on measuring where we're going. We need to have a focus on communicating and we need to focus on building employee networks. Now, three years later, we are setting up a global uh, women's group. We are doing gender pay equity. We are doing the things that start to measure the outcome of rewiring the system. Yeah. But if you go right to saying, you know, we're going to do a LinkedIn post to hire diverse candidates, we're going to hire the same people, and you haven't rewired the back-end system of how you select, how you train managers to select, how you train HR to select you're going to end up in the same place. It just is act activity without any outcome. Yeah, I, th I, th I think it's a really nice, uh, nice way you, you put it, actually. And I think it's interesting when you talk about the groups together. I think, and to your point, the groups are great. But actually, exactly as you said, it just increases the volume of the noise, but it's yeah. not actually changing anything. Yeah. I think it comes back to your point about social media. You can be a big voice on social media and dictate the conversation, but what's actually happening in, in the background. And, and authenticity is really important. I had a, recently a, a, a guy I was mentoring who was from Hong Kong and he came to Paris and, and I was connected with him. And he was telling me about um, a um, seminar he went to where they would have different employees come in and talk about sustainability. And one of the companies, it's not ours, so I will <laughs> first say that, but this company came in, it was a well-known French brand, and they were talking about sustainability. Now, the students are much more aware of what's actually happening. And of course, a lot of them had done research about this company before they came in. And what they determined was what they were saying was very different from what they were doing. They're, they were excellent at marketing, but their real story was a totally different uh, was a different reality. Yeah. And so that also is important. So, you know, I, I referenced this gender pay equity study that we just did in our organization. We're very lucky that, not lucky, I, I think there were a lot of good things that have gone into it because of the system, is that we have a very small pay gap. It's in fact as big on the, on the male side as it is on the female okay. side. So we're, we're pretty much at, at pay equity. Some places are higher and others, we have to address that. When we started to communicate that to people, as we've started to communicate, people believe it because they live in an organization that's transparent for the most part. Um, you know, if we lived in an organization where people felt sort of pushed down, not heard, we could say, oh, we have pay equity. People are like, I don't believe it. So 
you know, the authenticity part is really important. And especially with the emerging generation that have such access to information, um, if we're not authentic and we're not telling the story that's the real story and also telling, hey, we're not good at certain things and we're trying to get better at them, uh, then I think we have a really hard time as an organization being successful. Yeah. So obviously we're 2024. It, it, people people love a trend or love to understand what's going to happen this year or maybe that crystal ball and we can sort of gaze into the future. What's, what's going to be top of your in-trade this year on, on the, the EI side of things? Um, well, I've mentioned it now a couple of times, so I'll get back to it. Because of the global diversity of our organization and the complexity of discussions like diversity, equity, inclusion in different yeah. places around the world, we're spending more time with leadership team on this cultural competency discussion. Okay. And what, what does cultural competency look like? It seems like a sort of word salad. <laughs> so it's, you know, first is to ground the leadership team in what is our DE&I agenda and why are we trying to do it? How is it tied to the, to, to the business growth? You know, we're a, we're a business that's uh, got some brands that go back 250 years plus, like Dom Perignon. It's, a, yep. it's not going anywhere. Uh, and it's more or less, it, it, it grows and, and, and it evolves, but it's, it's more or less the same uh, brand that was developed a long time ago. Yet the organization is also acquiring new businesses and going into joint ventures with other businesses. So cultural competency is important for us because we do those things because they enrich, if we do them right, they enrich the whole organization. They enrich a uh, well-established maison as, which, as well as the new one. So cultural competency is how does a leader, whether they're based in Paris or London or Shanghai or, or Singapore or New York, effectively operate around the world? How can they fly into a city, get their bearings quickly, and be productive and efficient and inspiring? Yep. And so that's what cultural competency looks like for us. And it's not an easy thing. You know, we, we've done some assessment on, on cultural competency. Um, oftentimes people have a much higher opinion of themselves than it are, is the reality. Generally, oh, everyone does, don't they? <laughs> you probably didn't want to say it quite so bluntly, but I think everyone generally does. And, and I think people can say, oh, I, you know, I, I travel a lot and I've worked overseas and, and so I'm culturally competent. Well, not necessarily. You know, it's not, it, the, the two aren't necessarily linked. They help. Um, so giving people then the, the insight into where they are on a, on a spectrum of culturally competent and, the, and then the coaching and the support to be better at that uh, as our organization just becomes, you know, there, there's some trends of, I think, anti-globalization. The reality is in our business, we're becoming more global, more intertwined, more connected. Um, yet all the while, I go back to Dom Perignon, how we, how we, uh, market a project product like Dom Perignon in France versus Shanghai versus Malaysia is very different. Right. Still the core of the brand, but how people might associate that with their lives and which celebrations they want to be a part of, we have to be competent enough to, to know how to do that. And maybe most important, competent enough to listen to the local team to how it should be done. Yeah. Interesting. So, so cultural competency is, is, is top for you. Anything else that sort of is, is a focus this year? So we, we started out on the, the gender equity uh, journey, gender parity mm. journey, with not much to share. Right. And so we were very careful, again, about rewiring the system, making sure that, you know, we were having uh, equitable discussions when we were talking about hiring, equitable discussions we were talking about succession and talent planning, making sure that the compensation system was proper as we've just done that study and we feel like it's it's in good shape. So this year now we're starting to talk about more on the 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 agenda of why is a company like Moet Hennessy a great place for a woman to grow a career. It's not so intuitive. So it's a wines and spirits company. You could think uh, I'm not really sure that that's consistent with my life or my uh, my, my family life, but in fact, it's a great place for women to grow careers. Yeah. And we want to start to, to talk more about that and, and be proud of that because we see, we have some great representations, you know, presidents of maisons in our organization, presidents of functions in the organization. And we want to be more communicative on that and, and play a kind of more 
proactive uh, marketing role on that. So that's important yeah. to us because when we do that, then you know all of the other people in the organization start to feel like, okay, this is a great place for me to grow my career because I see that that person 20 years later is a maison president. It can happen. Yeah. yeah. And, and like I think anything in, in, in this space of diversity, equity, and inclusion, if we are able to make a positive impact with a group that was previously underrepresented, all underrepresented groups benefit from that yeah. because they can, people can be inspired, the systems are clean and they work properly. Uh, we don't have these biases that existed in the past in the organization. And that's a super exciting prospect for us when we're trying to build this global organization. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. If, if, we then, if we then sort of, I want to reference this back to your career a little bit because I want to talk about that sort of last point. Is there anything in your career, when you think back, we've been talking about it now for a little bit, for the last 45 minutes, is there anything that you wish you'd known earlier in your career journey to maybe push it along a little bit faster mm. or maybe do something slightly different? I think the one thing I often reflect on um, is, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of things that you think about in your head and you struggle in your head and you think, oh, should I do that? Should I not do that? If I had known, I think, earlier in my career, now I don't have gray hair yet, so I probably <laughs> didn't stress myself out too much. Day, Greg. <laughs> is to get out of your head onto the table so other people can help you think about things and help you make decisions on things. And, you know, if I think back in my career, I talked about the, the, the guy I worked for at GE who was like a second father. And I, I've had people like that in my career. And I, I just say to people that you have to consider who's around your table that's willing to help you think about things, think about work, think about life, think about career. Um, likely there are a lot of people that are solely interested in you. It could be your parents, it could be your spouse, it could be your kids, it could be a boss, a coworker, whomever. Go to those people. When you go to those people and you say, hey, Stuart, uh, I need your advice. So I came to you when I came back from Shanghai. Stuart, I need some advice about coming back to Hong Kong. That in itself is a huge recognition to the person that you ask. And I think oftentimes we forget that just asking is a recognition of somebody else's expertise. Well, thank you. You asked me for my advice. Wow, you care enough to. So I wish I had earlier in my career recognized the value in, in getting out of my head and asking people for, for more advice. Now, I, I was fortunate that I had people like that in my career, but I probably could have done that more often. Yeah. Uh, and also, again, it would have provided value to other people as well. So yeah. you don't have to wait until their, their waning days until you say, hey, by the way, you were really important to me in my career and, and giving them that, that, that gift. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it's really interesting, interesting advice, actually. And we're, we're sort of going to sign off, actually. So you, you can have that one as, as a baby. <laughs> I'm going to ask you three things that you would offer as advice to people throughout their career in terms of HR. That sounds like one of them. Um, what would the other two be? I really benefited from um, purposefully moving around the, the, the table in HR. You know, right. you've got compensation and benefits and learning and development and HRIS, which I was horrible at. And, uh, you know, oh, that's why it's just it's I mean, the detail. I'm not in the detail orientation is not my strength. And so that kind of thing. But, you know, then when you're sitting at a senior management table, and you're having discussions about you know, very complicated, complex, complicated things. You have all of these different perspectives, even from within the HR space. I think that that is absolutely critical, and it actually makes the the career in HR really fun. Um, you, you you get to challenge yourself. Sometimes you're not that good at it. You know, sometimes you're better at it. So, uh, I think that that's something that's critically important. And then. You know, as much as asking people for advice is building networks. Yep. You know, and and specifically networks outside your own company. Yeah. Oftentimes we work for great organizations. I work for a great organization. I work Hasbro was a great organization. Disney was a great organization. GE was a great organization. You can convince yourself 
that you've got the corner on great ideas. <laughs> and the reality is that their great ideas can come from anywhere. And so building community, building networks, uh, you know, building WhatsApp discussion groups with five or 10 other HR people who may be completely unrelated, but your friends and sharing ideas and thoughts uh, to me is just a, is a great way of working and a great way of constantly refreshing your mind. Yeah, I, I love both of those. Actually, the, the, the first point you raised in terms of moving around, I, I think is so important in terms of HR. And I, I align it a lot to, I align it a lot actually sort of team analogies around learn what it's like to play a different position. Understand yeah. you're, you're part of that team. Understanding what that player has to go through Absolutely. is really important. And, and to your point, we know that it's not probably not going to be the rest of your career. You're not going to spend your whole life in that area. But just to do a year or so to understand it, to sort of hone it, and, and as I said, experience what someone in that, that role goes through, I think is exceptionally powerful. Um, and then the networks piece, I, I, I love it. Like I see too many careers where people have been with an organization for sort of 10 plus years, and they've got so focused on the company that they've forgotten that there's yeah. a world out there that they should be connected to. Um, and it's when they sort of start thinking about their career that they suddenly go, oh, I need to build my network up again. Yeah. should never let that network go. This, this is, the, I think, the, what, th this is one of the networks I think that HR people don't value enough is relationships with, with um, people like yourself. Because you actually see oh, a thank lot. Thank you very much. <laughs> you, you actually see a lot of the HR space in a lot of different contexts. And um, I find that that, you know, kind of discussions, uh, interactions, engagements with, with you and others who do executive uh, recruitment and HR recruitment, super valuable. Because I don't know what's necessarily going on in the consumer pharmaceuticals world, but you do because you work with people that are in that world. And so that is one of the, the, one of the ways I think we can constantly keep ourselves current. Yeah, and I think, I think I'd like to say the good recruiters out there you can, can do that with. I think if I'm being critical of the recruitment industry, too much time is thought of as a sales industry yeah. and therefore it doesn't, it doesn't get utilized in that way. But I'd like to think the, the, good, the good people out there, the people who've been doing it a long time, I think exactly that should, should get utilized more in, in, in that way. Well, it's 18 years later, so we're still, we're still <laughs> That's talking. That's a good story. So I yeah, I like that. Somehow you're doing it right. <laughs> well, look, Greg, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so Thank much. You, well, Thank you so much for coming to London. Um, for those of you that, that obviously are listening to this, Greg's actually sat next to me, which is so nice to actually be able to do as a podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank um, you so much. But yeah, thank you so much for your insights. And if, if our audience have any questions, they can contact me on se at elliotscotthr.com. But look, once again, thank you so much, Greg, for your time today. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to share any thoughts or comments, you can get in touch with myself at se at elliotscotthr.com. Be sure to also subscribe to HR Insights for future episodes. Elliot Scott HR is an award-winning specialist HR recruitment company. We serve the HR community globally and have placed HR leaders in over 30 countries. There are over 100,000 members in the Elliot Scott HR community. Please join us via our website, elliotscotthr.com or our LinkedIn page. Take a look at other episodes in our podcast series, via our blog, and check out our up-and-coming webinars and events hosted in our six global locations.